be standing off to the side, but I do tend to at least flail my arms um, from time to time. We're going to jump right in this morning. If my number of slides has anything to do with the length of my sermons, we're in trouble. Okay? So we're going we're gonna to jump right in. We, we have been uh, in our study of Matthew for a while now. And as we get to verses 43 to 48 today, which really we're going to deal with in, in depth uh, at the end, towards the end of the sermon. There's quite a bit we're going to talk about before that. Um, we, are, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. And we have been engaged in Jesus communicating the depth of the law. That, that was going over the going over the heads of some and not going through the heart in others. And so we have been learning uh, quite a bit as we go through here. We're going to just look at, at this aspect of, of this text for right now. It says, but you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, this is what Jesus has done. He has highlighted each six times now. He has highlighted this idea that they've heard something, and now he's saying, but I've got more to tell you. We're going to go deeper into the, I'm not here to abolish the law, I'm here to fulfill it. And as we, as we see these words, it's the sixth and final time that Jesus uses these words to explain what the, raw, what the law truly means. And, he, and he's communicating this to his disciples or those who would, who would be disciples. And, and it's those and it's us that he desires for us to exercise Kingdom righteousness. And we, we've, we've talked about this a few times um, as we go through. But as you see, he says, these words you've heard, you shall love your neighbor. These are wonderful words. We, the, uh, Paul read it for us in, in, in just a few minutes ago and, and in the Leviticus 19 passage. And so we've seen these words, right? You shall love your neighbor. But these words that supposedly they had heard are not found anywhere in the Old Testament. So Jesus is bringing to the center of his focus the idea that religious leaders have come to an understanding of the Word of God that is not the meaning of the Word of God. The religious leaders have been teaching lies. They have been teaching that the Word of God says, love your neighbor, and that must mean that you must hate your enemy and Jesus, he is here to say, that is not what the law teaches. How does something not taught in the Bible become so ingrained in people's minds as, as if it is taught in the Bible? Um, I tried to think of some examples, but I honestly, the ones I came up with, I thought I might offend some, I might confuse others. And so I just ask you to consider are there things that we believe? Are there things that you believe, maybe personally, maybe as a family, maybe as uh, because of your prior church uh, experiences with other church families? Are there things that you believe that aren't in Scripture, but you've been taught, thus saith the Lord? I know there are things in my background. I know I've been taught things. And, and I, as I've I try to explain over and over again to people, uh, the way I, I, I look at life is I, I believe the things that I'm taught prior to the, the things I believe that I learn. And so as, as we consider uh, this 
dynamic. I think this is really true in many churches. I pray it's not true, true in ours. And I, I pray that if there's some weakness in the way that, that uh, uh, truth is taught or Bible is taught, or maybe we, we err on this side as teaching something that's not found in Scripture, then I hope that uh, the grace of God will come and, and expose that to us and, and we can grow out of it, uh, out of the practice. But I thought to myself, there are false teachers talked about in Scripture. That is one way that, that people are taught things that aren't actually in Scripture. I know cults is something that's near and dear to, to my heart. I have loved ones, many loved ones, both family and friends, who are involved in cults. And, and, and I know they've been taught things. And, they, and it says, the Bible says this, when I look at Scripture, I was like, it doesn't say that. And I thought there are people who take Scripture out of context all right, we, we know that's true where someone says, but the, uh, but the Word of God says this. Well, yeah, it does say those words, but you're taking it out of context. You've got to read before it. You've got to read after it. You've got to really make sure that if you're going to say, thus saith the Lord, that the Lord did thus say. You've got you to, there's, there's work that has to be accomplished there. And, and people, there are people who just repeat what, sound, what sounds biblical when it isn't, Right? Well, that's, that sounds right, right? And, and I've, you've heard people, you know, they'll be on the radio program, they'll be on the street corner, and, and they'll say things, and, and, and it's, uh, it kind of sounds right. But if you were to study it more, you would realize, no, that the Bible doesn't teach that. Why am I making this a point to start off with? Folks, listen, I, I think that we must become careful students of God's Word. This is like preliminary to the sermon because the context of Jesus' day as he's coming and talking to his disciples, as he's sitting, as he's sitting in, on this mount and he's teaching and, and he's, he's saying, listen, I'm not here to abolish, I'm here to fulfill the law. Please understand what the law has been teaching. There are those, and specifically with this sixth one, who have been teaching that you are to hate other individuals. It wasn't uncommon for there to be, there's not, it's not uncommon today for hatred to be expressed in our community. It's not uncommon to see it expressed in, in political views, in, in uh, um, of even religious views, all right? I'm talking about uh, not the Christian faith necessarily, certainly I hope not, but, but I will say as a chaplain, this is just flooding back into my memory, there was a Baptist church that spewed hate and they would picket the funerals of our fallen service members. They would show up with signs and they would yell. And, and as a chaplain, I never experienced that personally. But there were groups that, that knew that this was taking place and they showed up to try to be a restraint against those people if they did show up. In the name of Christ, they were spewing hatred. And I won't go into all the details of that. I don't want to give them the time, nor do I have the time. But we, as we talk about being careful students of God's Word, it's, it is my job to be that. And, and, and I am in conversation with people right now. I have questions on some of the things I taught a couple of years ago. And I'm still evaluating that, trying to make sure that I didn't err. And, and I've promised them, if, if, I, if I conclude after talking to the pastors that this particular thing that I said two, probably two plus years ago uh, is wrong, I'll correct it. I, I will, but I'm not ready to do that yet. And, and so we'll, we'll, but we are to become careful students, but all of us are. 
We're going through the, we went, uh, we're going through the book of Proverbs in our morning prayer time, and it, and it says we're supposed to seek after wisdom, and, and, and wisdom is, is out there for us to, to ask and receive, James tells us. You know, if you lack it, ask for it. God will give it. And so we're supposed to seek wisdom. We're supposed to seek understanding. All of us are. So as we go into this text, I, I want you to understand what was true in the day Jesus was speaking to his disciples is true in our world today. You have heard it said, but let's focus on what Jesus has to say. Let's look at the Old Testament teaching of Leviticus 19 first uh, in this verse 18. Uh, let's look at it in its context. I, I said let's be a careful student, so let's look at it. Here's the text of Leviticus 19:18. Uh, right? You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of, of, of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is straightforward scripture. It's what was read earlier. But these are the words Jesus is referencing. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. Right? He did. This is, this is what is taught in the Old Testament. What I want you to see as we go through the next few slides is, is how could people be confused about uh, loving your neighbor? And, and, and so I'm just going to, like for instance, I didn't highlight it, but, you know, don't bear a grudge against the children of your people. So the children of your people, are, are we talking about the, uh, I think for the most part we're talking about the Israelites. Moses is writing and he's, he's conveying to his group of people that God has given him authority over. And he says, hey, listen, don't bear a grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor. Well, in that context, it sounds like neighbor might have something to do with, with the, uh, the, the children of your people. Very possible. All right, it goes on to say, when you reap the harvest in your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Notice this verse, verse 10, right in the middle. And you shall not glean your vineyard. What does it mean to glean? Well, it means to pick up after. It means to, uh, he's saying, listen, don't get every grape. Don't get every fruit. Make sure you leave some on the vine. Leave some on the ground. Don't be worried about getting every little piece. He says, and you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. This is thus saith the Lord. And, and we know this is true as we talk about the, 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 the story of Ruth, right? Ruth and Naomi, they come back, they have nothing. There's just been all this famine. But, but uh, she, Boaz allows Ruth to, to glean in, her fe- in his field. And she's, she's able to survive. And he purposely tells his, his servants, those who are working in the fields, make sure you leave some for her. Leave her plenty. And, and that's, that's a story in and of itself, but we're familiar with it, so this helps us understand that I think we can understand that God cares that the poor and the foreigner have food to eat. God is a caring God, and he's not just for the poor, but for the foreigner. Well, if God, this foreigner would be the idea of an alien. It would be someone, a non-Israelite. And, and in this text, he says, you shall leave for them. Uh, leave them for the poor and the strangers so they can come by and they can have some sort of sustenance. I am the Lord your God. He cares for the poor and the foreigner. He goes on to say, you shall not steal, you deal falsely, you lie. You shall not swear by my name falsely. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. 
The wages of him is, uh, who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. Now, in that particular day, you would remember elsewhere in Scripture that the, uh, the, the, the parable goes, they would go out and there would be workers to, for hire. And he would go in the morning and then he went in the late morning and then he went in the afternoon and then he went in the late afternoon and he hired people to work in the fields. There were people that needed to work and he's saying, listen, don't withhold their wage. Don't take it home with you. Pay them at the end of the day. That is their culture. That is time thing. For us here, we wait two weeks. We get paid every two weeks, and that's fine with us. We know it's coming, and, and we're very thankful for all of you for helping us uh, uh, have our salaries. But he says, listen, so we see there, just focusing on that last part, we see that God cares for the hired help. Isn't that good news? God is a caring God. The Israelites are commanded to not steal, lie, uh, take a false oath or cheat. Uh, I think it's interesting. I think this sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. These are the things that we've been talking about over the last number of weeks, that we should not do these things. You've heard it said, but I say. And so we, we can see very clearly, these are things that none of us are supposed to do. He can goes on, you shall not curse the deaf or the blind. Or, or, now think about how wicked this is. I'm going to pause on this one. You shall not curse the deaf. Well, they're not hearing you. What does it matter? That's an attitude that people would have, right? Right? You, you ever curse someone under your, under your breath because they are hearing you and they could hear you? So, I've done it. But think of how, how wicked this is. Don't curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind. That is, that is wicked. And you know, there are people out there doing such things. Cursing the deaf isn't physically hurting the deaf person. But stumbling, putting a, an actual stumbling block before a blind person is so unkind. And in God's word, he says, don't do it. Apparently, it was being done. You shall not do this, but shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Notice how often he's saying this. He's like, listen, take this to heart. I mean what I'm saying. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. The, the, real, the reality of, of this text is that God cares that the deaf and the blind are treated with respect and that the poor and the rich are treated justly. That's all God is saying because we have a caring God. He goes on at 16, and you shall go about, uh, you shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. Remember, I'm, we're wrestling with this idea. Well, you know, what is the, what is the community that, that, that Moses is writing, that God is talking about, Moses is writing about, uh, your, among your people? Uh, are these the Israelites? It certainly sounds like the Israelites. Nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke him, uh, rebuke your neighbor, and, and not bear the sin because of him. I actually, I have some of that highlighted, but I want to go back for a second and say, listen, if you were to think about this, if he's just talking about the Israelites, okay, this is, this is not cool, all right? If he's just talking about the Israelites, then, then you shall not curse the deaf Israelite, but you can curse the deaf non-Israelite. Even worse, uh, you don't put a stumbling block before the blind Israelite, but not the blind 
non-Israelite, they're okay to put a stumbling block in front of. That is some of the, the nonsense that people, and if you follow the, some of the Israelites, they, they came to an understanding that you're allowed to hate your enemy. You're allowed to hate those who are non-Jewish. And as we see all these things in Leviticus 19, we come away with the truth that God is a caring, loving God. He cares about all these people. Don't be a tail-bearer. Uh, Don't take a stand against the life of your neighbor, which I'm not 100% sure exactly what it means, but it sounds bad, okay? Uh, he says, don't, don't hate your brother in your heart. This is Sermon on the Mount-ish. Remember, we're talking about, you have heard it said, but I say, and, and so much was, was involved with the practice, and Jesus is trying to get, no, the practice is one thing, the heart is another thing, but they're supposed to mirror one another. What is true in your heart You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. I say you should not be angry. It's a heart issue. That if it's not kept in check, if it's not submitted to the cross of Christ, it could manifest itself in physical murder, but the sin itself is the same. Don't hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. So we are, we are called to rebuke our neighbor, whoever that is. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in this text, Jesus is bringing to the forefront Leviticus 19, and, and we see very clearly that this is an important passage for us as disciples to understand. But there's a question, all right? And you're probably anticipating it. Who's my neighbor? Is it the Israelite? Is it, the, you know, is it just the Israelites that I, got, that I am supposed to be responsible to? Leviticus 19 was written in the days of Moses. And they just left Egypt. And, and they've been wandering in the wilderness. And they're getting ready to go into the land and wipe them out. But when we get to the New Testament, there is a Jewish leader who asks this question of Jesus. And you're familiar with it, and so we have to look at it. In Luke 10, a certain lawyer stood up. No jokes today, right? A certain Jewish lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Wonderful question. This isn't the only time Jesus has asked this question. There was uh, what we call the rich young ruler came to Jesus and, and, sa and said, Lord, what, 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 what must I do to, to obtain eternal life, right? Well, Jesus is pretty consistent in his answers. Uh, but he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is a Jewish lawyer. And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? There's two episodes of this. One, Jesus does the asking. And the other one, uh, a different uh, Jewish lawyer asks the question. But in this one, Jesus is saying, what is written in the law? The one that I came to fulfill that he's preaching in Matthew uh, 5. What is your reading of it? The, the Jewish lawyer says, he answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind. Good answer, right? You shall love the Lord your God. And 
your neighbor as yourself. Where did this Jewish lawyer pluck that verse from? Leviticus 19. Is he right? Well, according to Jesus, he is. Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. What did he tell the rich young ruler? He's like, well, do this, this. Well, I've done all the things. Well, then go and sell all you have and come follow me. And that rich young ruler could not abide. He couldn't. He was like, oh, that, that's too much. I, I own a lot of stuff. You're asking. There's a line apparently that I'm not willing to cross to follow Jesus. And in this person's life, he should have stopped right here. Right? You ever do that? Where you're like, you, you, got, a, you got an attaboy from the teacher or an girl from the teacher, and then you say something else, and you're like, you, you should have just kept quiet, right? But Jesus, uh, excuse me, but the, the, the Jewish lawyer says, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? Who is my neighbor? We know the story, so let's look at it. Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down. We're going to go through this quickly because you know the story. Most of you should, and if this is new to you, great story, right? A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came, by, uh, came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A priest. Likewise, a Levite, also a very religious person who worked in the temple and did very many uh, religious things, is that when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, uh, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Wonderful story. So Jesus asked this religious Jewish lawyer. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the, the thieves? And the lawyer said, he who showed mercy on him. I've heard preachers make a big deal out of the fact that he couldn't utter the, the Samaritan as the answer. Uh, I'm, I'm willing to cut the guy a break, right? He gave the right answer earlier. He's like, I think he's just like, yeah, he who showed mercy. Jesus said, Go and do likewise. He said that earlier to the guy. He was like, what, what did you say? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Go, do, Jesus says. Oh, but I want to justify myself. Well, who's my neighbor? Then he gets this lesson. And what is he told to do? Go and do likewise. As, as, we, as we think about this story, I thought to myself, prior to Jesus confronting this man, this man would have felt justified in his hatred of all Samaritans. It was culturally acceptable. They're Samaritans. They're half Jews. They're not full Jews. 
they're compromisers. They're from a heritage of compromisers, and 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 they're they're unclean. You just can't you can't just, you can't trust the Samaritans. And he felt justified in his hatred. But Jesus established the unclean Samaritan as the role model of love for that Jewish lawyer. It's hard for us maybe to enter into the cultural dynamic of, of their day and what that might have meant. This is a Jewish lawyer. He's an expert in the law. He knows Leviticus 19. And Jesus has just unwrapped his lack of understanding. And I came to this question. Do you think that man ever forgot the lesson that Jesus taught him? Do you think there was ever a time where he wasn't walking through his community where he saw a Samaritan and thought to himself, whew, is that my role model of love? Is there not a time where he was feeling self-righteous when he was acting and realizing he wasn't acting any better than that priest or that Levite? Ooh, I remember Jesus taught me this lesson. The power of that particular story in that man's life, who knows how it changed him. But we have to ask ourselves, is it, does it change us? Because this is all the backstory. This is all the priming of the pump for what Jesus is about to say in Matthew 5. Does this particular story have anything to do with us? If you were to put yourself in the place of that Jewish lawyer, who would you struggle to call your neighbor? And I don't know who that would be for you. Think about all the dysfunctional relationships that you are aware of in your own family. I'll give you a second. Okay, now, now you, we're, we're, we're done with your family. Think about all the dysfunctional relationships that exist beyond your family, in your workplace, in your friends' lives, and you look at the world around us, and you have to conclude that there are a whole lot of people hating other people. And we're called to look upon those people potentially, if they're doing right and, and, and loving in a way that we find ourselves not able to love. They may be the example of love for us that we need, but we have to have our eyes open. We have to be looking for this, if you were to put yourself in the place of that Jewish lawyer, who would you struggle to call your neighbor? I have some thoughts in my own mind regarding my own heart on this. Who is it that you think and that I think we are justified to hate? There's a story of a guy, one of my soldiers, who uh, I have multiple soldiers actually when we were in Afghanistan, and uh, their friends had been killed in battle. We did many memorial services, and there was a lot of sadness, but there was a lot of hatred. And I've heard more, I've heard more than once the words, I hate those people. It wasn't the individual who fired the shot that killed their friend. It was all-encompassing, I hate 
all of them. That was the way it was communicated. That was his heart at that point in time in his life. I hate them all. And this is a brother in Christ. We have many walking wounded in our service members' lives. And it impacts other relationships, does it not? This good friend of mine, I I doubt he's watching me today, so I'm not going to use his name, but I'll say he has subsequently divorced his wife. Hatred has a way of getting in and messing up your life in a way that you cannot even imagine what the consequences will be in the other relationships of your lives. Mom and dad, the hatred that, that you may express towards others or even each other, imagine how the consequences of that hatred is going to have in the lives of your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. It's the essence of the, of the generational sins that people talk about as if it's some mystery about how does that sin? No, it's the impact of one sin in a relationship that consequently boils over and, and, and just... It's like vomiting into the lives of all the people you love. And they are left with a mess in the muck. We don't think divorce hurts others. We don't def- think that our, the way we, we treat others matters. I'm justified in my hatred. They did this to me. I'm justified in my hatred. They did this to my little one or to my parent. Who is it that you think you are justified to hate? I have to ask it for you because otherwise preaching loses a lot of its power. Yes, I'm talking to me too. But if we don't make this personal, we miss the point. I want you to keep this person, or maybe it's people. That's referring to that friend of mine. He had a whole section of the world that he hated. Keeping them in your mind as we move further into Matthew 5. We have talked over the last few weeks that kingdom righteousness demands that citizens of the kingdom be full of truth. Last week we talked about that they are called to be empty of malice. The point today is the fact that kingdom righteousness demands that citizens of the kingdom be wholly Christ-like. That, that terminology is going to come from the last verse of this section, verse uh, 48. And I think it's the all-encompassing one that says you are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, right? That's the idea of whole, and I'll, I'll get there. But just so you know, that's where we're, we're heading. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, here's the command, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. There are two commands in this text. Love and pray. Love your enemies. I think he fleshes that out a little bit, but he's saying pray for those who persecute you. Why do I have those words all in purple? I'm going to just touch on this. I don't have time to deal with it today. But all these other words underlined are words not found in some of the manuscripts, uh, translations of Matthew. If you're reading an ESV, probably a New American Standard, probably some other ones, these words are not in your text. But they are in the New King James. They are in the King James. 
The good part is they are found in the ESV and the other translations in Luke 6, 27 and 28. So it, they're, they're Bible. They just may not be in your Bible, depending on what translation you're reading today. Does that mean your Bible is deficient? No. I believe that God's word is, pre, uh, is preserved through the multiplicity of texts. We have different text families that have come different areas of the world as so-and-so copied and so-and-so copied. The thought is, nobody knows for sure, the thought is that somebody who knew Luke 6, 27 and 28, as they were writing, uh, as they were transcribing Matthew in this one particular text family, they moved the words over there to here because the words were spoken by Jesus. But they aren't in the other manuscripts, so it's not a problem. It's actually a beautiful thing that we have Scripture that can bear to Scripture, and we can see that all this is still true. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. That's a manifestation. That's a practice of loving your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. One of the words, I think, in the, in the Luke passage is abuse you. I have many, many years of pastoral experience, both as a pastor and as a chaplain. It's pastoral. But the, the nature of abuse in our world is overwhelming. I was at a pastor's conference. Pastor Dave and I were at a conference this past, uh, earlier this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. One of the speakers there was telling the story of how he came to understand how his wife had been abused by her family members. He didn't know. And the pastor, a friend of mine, my former senior pastor, he gets on one day and he preaches a message. And it says, love your enemies and pray for those who abuse you. That lady went with her husband and said, you stay right here. I'm going into his office, and I don't want you to know what we're talking about. And she went in there. The volume went up. Basically what he conveyed were the words of her words to the pastor who preached the message. How dare you tell me I need to pray and love the, the person who did this to me? I think we can all have some compassion on her. But that was the watershed moment of her life. She spoke to her pastor about the devastation of the events that her husband didn't even know about. But he was paying for it. Because it was through that moment, it was from that moment where he and his wife started talking and they went into counseling and, and, and her sin had poisoned their marriage and had poisoned their children's lives. And, and it wasn't until she brought forth that hatred and that pain and, and that disgust and that hurt and she brought it to the cross of Christ and she obeyed and she loved her neighbor. She forgave those who abused her. She became that person who was able to, as, as 2 Corinthians 1 tells us, she was able to take the pain and the comfort that God had given her in that pain. And she has now led many, many, many other women and men between her and her husband to heal from sexual, physical abuse, all forms of abuse. That was a watershed moment. What happened? She Allowed scripture, albeit <laughs> not she fought it. 
But God got through, and she understood, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute or abuse you. It's a hard teaching. God commands that we love and pray for our enemies. Why does God command us to do something which seems so irrational? Seemed irrational to her in the moment. Might seem irrational to you in this moment. But if I could just say, if you need someone to talk to, I'd be glad to talk to you about it. It's not irrational. It is Christ-like. Because there, I think I came up with two reasons that God, that we're called to do this. God cares about our enemies. It's, that's, it's true, isn't it? Will we ever say that Jesus hated anybody? The reality is, if you still have that face or that name in your mind about this person, God loves that person. Jesus Christ died for that person. They may not have come to faith yet, or maybe they have. What are you to do with your hatred? God loves his enemies. God loves our enemies, God, but God loves his enemies. This is the gospel. Look at, look at, how do we know God loves his enemies? Because he loves us. It's told us in Scripture, Romans 5, 8, 10, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, hang in there, I think that's a, another way of saying enemies, but hang in there for the next slide, right? He says, while we were still sinners, in, in open rebellion against God and his Son, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him, through Jesus. For if, if, when we were enemies, enemies of who? Enemies of God. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Think about that for a minute. That person whose name or face is in your head or mind, I'm telling you right now, as, as disgusting as whatever they did to you might be, all of us are guilty of sinning against God. It says, while we were his enemies, we were reconciled. We were brought into right relationship with God through the death of his son. God spared nothing to redeem us. Much more, having been reconciled, which most of us have in this room, we shall be saved by his life. This is amazing truth. This is the gospel. And it, honestly, if you're here this morning and, and you don't know, or you're watching this five years from now on YouTube, I'm telling you right now, if you have not come to the understanding that you need to have a reconciled relationship to God, and that reconciled relationship only comes through what Jesus Christ did on that cross. If, if you don't come to some realization that he died for your sins, and that that's all that it takes for you to be forgiven, for you to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that his death was an atoning death for your sin. When you come to that realization, we're told we have been reconciled to God. But a reconciled life means we are to live in reconciliation with others, even our enemies. Why? Does God call us to, to do this? He says, so that we may be sons of your Father in heaven. I say children of your Father in heaven. 
uh, the, the idea here is that children display the character traits of their parents. Uh, it's, it's the idea that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It's true of my children with me and my wife. It's true of your children with you and your wife, uh, you and your spouse. Uh, it, it is, it is, it, we know the dynamic. The children of God are, are to reveal God's character to this world. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine that people will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We're in the same context. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. He hasn't lost his way in what he's talking about. This is all part of, of what we are called to do. That is why our theme this year is Christ in us, legitimately in us, reveals Christ to our community. So how do we know God loves his enemies? Because God extends grace to everyone. That's what it says. We're going to go quickly now. God extends grace to everyone. Uh, and this verse says, For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. This is often called God's common grace. God bestows grace on everyone. That's what it says here. It's like, love your enemies. Pray for them. Why would God ask us to do that? Because he loves our enemies. He loves his enemies. And, and he, he loves his enemies to the point where he's allowing the, the sun to rise on the evil and the good. The rain comes on the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. God, there's this common grace that is extended to everyone. So how are we to reveal God's loving character? How are we supposed to, to be like God? He says, we are to love differently than the world loves. He gives us two simple illustrations. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Can you, can you picture Jesus saying this to his disciples, right? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Think about your own life, our own world, right? Tax collectors were the, the bottom rung. They were the social outcasts of the Jewish community. They had compromised to the point where they were stealing from their own people to pad their own pockets. And the, and the Romans employed them. And they, they were traitors. Are you willing to forgive a traitor of the United States of America? Just saying. One application, right? For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so. The, the, the point here is we are to love differently than the world loves. We're not dealing with the level of rationality or irrationality. We're dealing with Christ-likeness. We are to love completely like God does. This is what he says, final verse. Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This word perfect has various nuances, and, and depending on where it's used in the context of the passage, uh, it, it's perfect, has the idea of perfection. All right? So, therefore, you shall be with total perfection just as your Father in heaven is, is totally perfected. Okay, there's some aspect of that which I think is true in the word. But he's not saying it's through our own effort we're able to do this. He's saying that when we do this, therefore, when you are manifesting love like the love that has just been described, when you are able to love your enemy as the way God loves your enemy and the way God loves his enemies, he says, when you're doing that, now, now you're looking like God. It, perfect has the idea of completion or maturity, right? 
that's used that way many times. But here I had one author, which I thought he did a It's the idea of wholeness. What Jesus has been hammering home to his disciples, the idea that whatever you're doing outwardly needs to be believed inwardly. And whatever you believe inwardly affects the way it's received outwardly. Anger, murder, lust, adultery, hating, loving. It's the idea, I, I like this whole idea of wholeness. The whole person, our whole person is supposed to be involved in kingdom righteousness. Kingdom righteousness demands that citizens of the kingdom be wholly Christ-like. Not just here and there and in certain circumstances. Jesus loved everyone. He gave his life for everyone, even the most vilest person. Jesus is the only example of perfection we have. And it is only in him that we can be complete, mature, and whole. If you are in Christ this morning, you are to love your enemies. There's no way around it. And you are supposed to pray for them. I will say, if there are people in your life that you're struggling with, maybe it's not hate. Maybe it's just, I don't like them very much. If you pray for them, you will like them more. And you will love them better. Because it's very hard to pray for someone's good and then hate them. You've just called the witness of God upon your own prayer life as you pray for this person, whoever it might be. And God will soften your heart to these individuals. How has God stirred your heart today? Are you... Are you known for your love of others? I honestly thought about just having that one question because I think that's convicting enough. Are you known for your love of others? This is where you go home and look in the mirror. Am I known for my love of others? Am I known for my love of my enemies? Are you wrestling with forgiveness of those who have harmed you? That might be something that's been stirred up today. Are you considering ways you can express Christ-like love to those in your life? I hope so. I know I am. And it's not easy. But it's what we are called to do. Are you willing to be holy like Christ? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the powerful words in this particular text. And I pray that you would convict our hearts of the ways that we are violating kingdom righteousness. Father, if there are those here today who are struggling in some area, maybe not an area I've even touched on directly on this sermon, but Father, we know that your Holy Spirit is present and will convict us of our sin. But you don't just convict, you restore. I pray, Father, that people would come to a point of forgiveness towards those who have harmed them, whether it be perceived or real. Lord, I pray you'd bring forgiveness and love. Lord, for those that are struggling in unimaginable ways at this moment, I pray that you'd bring those to someone, me, another pastor, a good friend, a counselor, someone, Father, who can lead them out of the darkness of hatred. Father, I pray that you'd be glorified in the heart response of your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.